Another pot of coffee is brewing and it was actually, for me at least, a lovely short week at work as I had a few days off. Of course, there's also only been a few days between this brand new episode and the last one because I released it a little bit later than usual. Of course, I have been firing on all cylinders thanks to copious amounts of coffee and a very healthy supply of books, which I am going to happily talk about in a little bit. All that means is that it's time for the next book episode of Not Before Coffee, season four. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, film addict, TV show marathoner, hermit, long-term depression sufferer, and very honest caffeine fiend. Light the candles, get yourself a fresh cup of something hot or a glass of something chilled, depending entirely on when you're listening, of course. And let's get started. Since the last episode, I am proud to say I haven't purchased any books. Yes, I do have a bit of discipline. Not always. However, I did receive a voucher to buy more books. And I also got a box containing four new books for my birthday, one of which I am going to be reviewing today. Today's book is an award-winning fantasy released in March 2020. And when I started to read it, I immediately found the writing style felt both unique and familiar at the same time. The author has written 29 novels, most of them focusing on the LBGTQ plus community, with many of them written in the fantasy genre. I have to be honest and say that while I do read a lot, I tend to stay very much in my lane, focusing on genres and authors that I am familiar with. However, despite having been released two years ago, this book suddenly started appearing every few posts on my Facebook group feeds. And though reviews were incredibly mixed, something I will get to later, I decided that I should make up my own mind. And the title was Poetic, so I added it to my Amazon wish list. At the beginning of the month, I gave my wish list to my mum and purposely avoided buying anything on it. And then my sister surprised me with a beautiful selection of four of them, including TJ Clune's The House in the Cerulean Sea. So this week, that's what I'm reviewing. A magical island, a dangerous task, a burning secret. Linus Baker leads a quiet, solitary life. At 40, he lives in a tiny house with a devious cat and his old records. As a caseworker at the department in charge of magical youth, he spends his days overseeing the well-being of children in government-sanctioned orphanages. When Linus is unexpectedly summoned by extremely upper management, he's given a curious and highly classified assignment. Travel to Marcius Island Orphanage, where six dangerous children reside, a gnome, a sprite, a wyvern, an unidentifiable green blob, a were-pomeranian, and the Antichrist. Linus must set aside his fears and determine whether or not they're likely to bring about the end of days. But the children aren't the only secret the island keeps. Their caretaker is the charming and enigmatic Arthur Parnassus, who will do anything to keep his ward safe. As Arthur and Linus grow closer, long-held secrets are exposed and Linus must make a choice 
destroy a home or watch the world burn. An enchanting and masterfully told story, The House in the Cerulean Sea is about the profound experience of discovering an unlikely family in an unexpected place and realizing that family is yours. As with every week, I am going to start at the beginning and tell you a little bit about the story. And the beginning is the best place to start. However, as with every single week, I'm not going to be giving away the ending, plot twists or anything else. Because whether I like the book or not, other people need to find out if they like it for themselves. And I'm not a book spoiler person. As I have mentioned several times before, fantasy has long been a genre that I enjoy. Starting with the first time I ever read Lord of the Rings at the age of 11. I have been complaining of boredom that summer and my great uncle handed me this massive green tome with a cracked spine and many folded and unfolded pages. And then he told me, read this and then come back and tell me you're bored. I have always been a big reader, but this was my introduction to epic journeys and fantasy and I was hooked. So imagine my joy when I opened this book and from the first paragraph... Oh dear, Linus Baker said, wiping the sweat from his brow. This is most unusual. I knew that I was going to be transported into a world that gave me tingles of excitement that reminded me of the first time I read Tolkien. Linus Baker is a caseworker at the department in charge of magical youth, often referred to as Dicomi, all in capital letters. He has been working there for 17 years the job is routine, he visits various orphanages and schools funded by the department, files his reports and then the cases are done and he remains detached. His reports are by the book, a very specific book, Rules and Regulations, and though he might well wonder what happens after these reports are filed, it's not his business and therefore he doesn't ask questions. Though his life is mundane, a journey to the office on the bus every day, hours spent at his desk, row L, desk 7, reading reports and filing paperwork and then back home to his attitude-filled cat, Calliope, and a conversation with his rather unpleasant and completely nosy neighbour, Mrs Clapper. He is lonely. He refuses to acknowledge or admit it and he tries to remain positive about his lot in life, but he does have a dream, inspired by the only decoration he is allowed on his work desk, a mouse pad covered with a faded image of a white sandy beach and a blue ocean, and the tagline, Don't you wish you were here? Linus really wishes he were. Dicomi is responsible for the care and education of children who have displayed anything resembling magical ability. Children who are different and are, therefore, for some reason, treated as outcasts by those who are considered normal. Begs the question, what's normal? I know I'm not. And I'm proud of that fact. All around the city where Linus lives and the locations he visits are signs that encourage people to report things they believe are out of the ordinary. With every single day like the last, Linus has a very routine life. But that all changes when he receives a summons to see extremely upper management a quartet of men and women who have moved through the ranks to become the overseers, the people who watch the watchers. Despite considering himself a mere cog in a much bigger wheel, his rule-following and to-the-point reports have caught their eye. His direct manager and supervisor spend their time mocking him 
and his colleagues have no respect for him, considering him a joke, even though they are all the same cogs. But he has the attention of upper management, and they have an important task for him to do. This is the moment when the real story begins. Linus is tasked with a special mission, to visit an orphanage on an island near the village of Marcias, where six very special and unusual children are in the care of a man called Arthur Parnassus. Finally, after years of sitting in the shadows, spending time with his cat and the records he plays on his Victrola, he has been given the opportunity to see the water, visit the beach, and get out of the stifling office where rules are paramount. What Linus finds on Marcias is not what he is expecting at all. He has been given an envelope of files, but they are incomplete, providing him with very little information about the children he is to watch. And so he goes in unprepared, and unaware that his life is about to change forever. Though the files are incredibly sparse when it comes to information, one thing definitely stands out. Lucy, one of the children, also known as Lucifer, is the Antichrist, a son of the devil. However, this six-year-old boy is not at all what Linus anticipated. The word Antichrist puts in mind a boy with evil at his very heart, However, Linus discovers a child who jokes with his friends, loves music and dancing, does chores around the house and suffers at night because he is fearful of what he could become. He is conscious of his differences, but in this home by the sea, under the care of Arthur, he is thriving. He has friends, he has a purpose and he is happy. That he is the son of the devil does not define who he must become. All of the children are unique from Sal, who is nervous at the thought of meeting with and being around new people and, when startled, transforms into a Pomeranian, to Talia, a wonderful, confident, green-fingered garden gnome who spends her time threatening harm on those who cause her offence. Initially, it's obvious that Linus feels like a fish out of water, floundering and desperate for oxygen. He has been put in a situation that is so far out of his comfort zone, but slowly he adjusts, and before long the children and Arthur have pushed their way into his heart. The house is not magical, but the people within it are, and with every single day that passes, Linus questions the reasons behind the actions of extremely upper management. What is it that they are so concerned about? Without a clue as to his real purpose on the island, Linus sends his weekly reports, providing his employers with information about the children, he writes of what they are doing, that they are being educated, that they are well-loved. But this isn't what extremely upper management want. There is darkness at the heart of the dichomy, and though he is part of the organisation, Linus has no idea what happens once he has filed his reports and done what has been asked of him. The book has been marketed as an LGBTQ romance. On the back of the copy of my book is a one-liner from author V. E. Schwab, referring to it as like being wrapped up in a big gay blanket. But either I missed something completely or the sexuality of the characters was simply not the most important thing about this story. That said, I don't care. The love that grew between Linus and Arthur was a beautifully written subplot that was subtle yet vital and they were simply perfect. It was like a tale of first love. Linus had never experienced love and Arthur seemingly hadn't allowed himself the luxury of feeling anything for anyone but the children in his care. 
It takes a little bit of time, and though he knows he's meant to remain impartial, observing what the children are doing and how they interact with the man who cares for them, Linus opens his heart up to this oddball group of children who have been treated with distrust and hatred by everyone for their entire, in some case, short lives. Each child is unique, and I feel as though this is intentional. Sal is a shapeshifter, Talia a gnome. Chauncey, wonderful, endearing, funny Chauncey, is an amorphous sea creature who has a dream of becoming a bellhop. Fee is a forest sprite testing her powers. Theodore is a wyvern who bonds with Linus after he is gifted with a single brass button. And of course, young Lucy is the devil's own. Just like Linus, each of these children is in a place where they have to conform and hide away the truth of who they are. Like Linus, they need the strength to open up, get close, and take a few risks no matter what may happen. Together, that's exactly what Linus, Arthur, Zoe, the keeper of the island, and the six children learn to do. And every moment of their journey is wonderful to read. Spending time in Marcias is a revelation for everyone. For Linus, where once there was darkness and isolation, he has found the opportunities of the world. Before I get into what I thought about the book in more detail, I figured that I'd take a look at some of the reviews that are out there. It's, the book has been out for a while after all. I think that a good review needs to contain balance. So let's take a quick glimpse at what other people thought of this novel. Part of me thinks that it would be a wonderful film, if I'm honest, but the other part of me that remembers the travesty that is films of other books I have read and enjoyed knows that this would be a huge mistake. I'm looking at you, the changeover. That is forever going to really disappoint me. Tabitha gave it five stars and said, Amazing feel-good book. This is a book that took me a bit to get into because it was kind of boring. I know, I know. But once I got to the middle and Linus was on the island, it was amazing. Seeing him bond with the children and Arthur was the best. The children stole the show, though. All of them were so beautifully written. The meaning of the book, to not judge a book by its cover, and no matter what you identify as, you are capable of being loved and you will be loved ferociously. This book made me so happy. Great writing. I hope there's another book made continuing on with the ending. A gave it just one star and I got the feeling that they would have rather given the book zero. God, it was awful. The book starts out with the humour of discomfort. The main character is a misfit in a toxic workplace with a confined, uncomfortable life. There is an air of Dickensian misery. There is an air of Englishness about the whole thing, perhaps the way everyone is trapped in miserable, powerless, damp, grey lives. At the same time, it has a theme of self-fulfilment, individuality, which is very American. The book read like a juvenile. At one point, I popped onto Amazon to see whether the book was marketed as for kids or young adults, and it is not. The narration talks down to the readers. The narration talks a lot. Generally, it's very wordy and self-indulgent. Someone has been reading too much Douglas Adams recently, and possibly Winnie the Pooh. It's pretty clear in the early chapters how the book is going to unfurl. You can just tell by about page five that the main character's arc will be about finding himself, 
a found family and self-realisation. So he goes off to check out an orphanage for unusual children. At this point, it is confirmed that the main theme is, even if you are unusual, a bit fat, everyone thinks you're evil, you are a good person, accept yourself as you are. We should accept and welcome everyone. There is a lot of uncomfortable exchanges with people which I did not enjoy. You can tell there is going to be a romantic arc between the main character and the fellow who runs the orphanage and some revelation about the shenanigans of those in power. This book can be targeted at young people as there isn't any sex in it. Not that young people care, but older people in charge of marketing apparently do. Finding a middle ground was actually harder than I thought it would be. However, it appears that this is something of a Marmite book. Either you love it passionately and think it's the best thing since sliced bread, or you absolutely abhor everything about it and would designate it the worst thing you've read in ages. I get it. I've read books like that many times and been on both sides of the discussion. After a bit of searching, I did manage to find a review by Anthony, who gave The House in the Cerulean Sea three stars. He said... This is a mildly diverting, well-intentioned tale, but ultimately its themes of the subjugation, oppression and othering of certain members of society proved to be too much for T.J. Clune to really honour with any sense of palpable drama or tension. I've had bookworm friends describe this as a warm hug, and I can understand why they'd say that, but for me, I need far more depth and substance to feel uplifted or moved by such an embrace. I also feel it necessary to address what some folks have pointed out as being problematic about this book, namely its author citing his learning of the terrible history of residential schools as being a source of inspiration. I understand why that's upsetting to hear, and I also understand why Clune would want to try to find a way to explore those themes in a fantastical, allegorical manner. So I don't necessarily begrudge him his good intentions, I just feel that ultimately he didn't have the capacity to do the subject the kind of justice he was hoping for. I've had a hard time knocking the rating lower because of the generosity of spirit emanating from its pages, even though I longed for more depth. As has been mentioned in the last review, many people who gave this book a one-star rating had a huge issue with the references that Clune himself made in a podcast, where he stated he was influenced by the stories of the 60s scoop in Canada something I admit I was not at all familiar with until I did a bit of research after reading those reviews. I'm not going to give a lecture on something I am incredibly unfamiliar with. However, what I read was both eye-opening and horrifying. The 60s scoop was a period in which a series of policies were enacted in Canada that enabled child welfare authorities to take, or scoop up, indigenous children from their families and communities for placement in foster homes, from which they would be adopted by white families. Despite its name referencing the 1960s specifically, the 60s scoop began in the mid to late 50s and persisted for almost 30 years into the 1980s. I have not actually read the transcript of the podcast during which Clune said this was his inspiration, so I personally can't make any judgment on his statement in any way or form. I think that ultimately I read this as a book on its own merits. Did I like the book? I'm really pleased that I added this to my wish list and that my sister picked this one out when she chose the books she ended up getting me for my birthday. 
Is it problematic? If the interview quotes are anything to go by, then yes, it is. However, disregarding that, it was a beautiful fantasy tale, pushing the merits of accepting people who are different for who they are. Telling you not to judge people for what they look like or what you've been told before you have a chance to make up your own mind. For me, the message is a positive one, and when it was released, it was an incredibly appropriate one, as it first hit the bookshelves at the start of the pandemic. Will I Read More by TJ Clune. Would you judge me if I told you I already have ordered one despite having a 24-book TBR? I've already purchased his latest standalone, Under the Whispering Door. The summary makes the book sound incredibly intriguing, and I'm going to have to battle all of my desires to read it as soon as it arrives. If you're looking for something like this, or you loved this and want something else, then you'll love these. Having not read anything else by Clune, as yet the shelf containing books with a similar writing style is incredibly sparse. However, I would say that his writing style is incredibly similar to Douglas Adams, who is the author that gifted us with the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series and the original Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. Tom Holt is another author who writes in a very similar style, satirical and humorous science fiction and fantasy novels, such as Snow White and the Seven Samurai and Nothing But Blue Skies. He also wrote The Management Style of the Supreme Beings, which I reviewed a few months ago, and I will post a link to that one in the info box so you can read, listen to that or listen to it for the first time if you haven't already. An author that Clune has himself said inspired him is the late, great Terry Pratchett. So if you're looking to invest a lot of time, then you can't go far wrong with his Discworld books. However, if you want a standalone, then his novel Nation is wonderful. Or of course, there is his book with Neil Gaiman, Good Omens, another which I have reviewed with Chance Whitmore, and I will post that link below as well. The Oracle Network. Hello everyone and welcome to my horror movie podcast. A podcast that focuses on the real horrors of the world. Movies are supposed to be a form of escapism. A place to leave the real evil behind us. But some, like the ones discussed in this podcast, are based on actual events. So if you're into true crime and the paranormal is told through film, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to the True Crime in Horror. I am your host, Lorraine Purden, and this is Once Upon a Nightmare. Available on your platform of choice. This week, I have read a total of one book since I released the last episode. But to be fair, that was only four days ago. I would have liked to have read more, but after reading three really disappointing books, I was so surprised at finding something good that I took my time over it, and The House in the Cerulean Sea took me two days. I was hoping that I would get a lot more done when I had some time off work, but it seems I was destined to be disappointed. However, I have a nice big pile of books to work my way through, and I am hopeful that they will all be good in their own way. That having been said... I have read a total of 13 books this year, six of them this month alone, and have now also read books by eight authors who are new to me, so I am nearly halfway on that challenge. 
If you have any recommendations of books you'd love to hear me talk about or just want to recommend a new book in general, send them all over to notbeforecoffeepodcast at gmail.com or DM me on Twitter and I will check them out. Next week, February reaches its end and a fresh new batch of novels hit the shelves. However, this week there are a few new books to look forward to, including Jesse Ware's Omelette, Food, Love, Chaos and Other Conversations, a memoir dedicated to her love of food. This is released on the 24th. It seems that cosy crime has become the go-to for TV presenters, with TV chef Rosemary Schrager releasing her debut, The Last Supper, also on the 24th. And if you love the story of Les Miserables and always wondered how things were from Fontaine's perspective, then Fanny by Rebecca F. John is a good place to start. If you want to find out more about new releases, now is a great time to sign up for my monthly newsletter. Head over to notbeforecoffee.co.uk to add your name to the list. So how are things in the coffee household this week? If I said it's all good, would you believe me? This week has been a mad mix, and as I only recorded last week's episode four days ago, things haven't changed over much. Granted, I aged a year on Thursday, or at least the number on forms went up by one, because really it was only a day. I got some new books, I had my eyes tested and need to wear glasses to read and use the computer, so essentially whenever my eyes are open, and I have been sitting in a room with a flickering light for the last few hours as the wind builds outside. To be fair, none of this is incredibly bad, and I could count myself as one of the lucky ones who didn't suffer any serious damage during the recent storms, despite it sounding as though there is a full-on hurricane going on outside. I know that if the power goes off, I have a full battery charge on everything but my phone, I have a great selection of books at my disposal, and I'm safe. I haven't been sleeping all that well. In fact, the other night when I changed into my sleepwear, I actually put everything on inside out and didn't notice until the next morning. And of course, I am still in a very retrospective mood and will likely be there for a few more weeks to come. But I think that this just comes and goes with age. The worst thing that happened and sent me into a little bit of a tailspin was noticing a wide streak of grey at my crown when I looked in the mirror. Does this mean I had no grey before? Seriously? I'm 48. Of course not. But wow, this was a wake-up call. Highlighting that I am now even closer to the next milestone. Where's that root touch-up? Well, that's it for this week. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and family? And please post a star rating over on Good Pods, Spotify, Podchaser, or wherever else you listen. You can follow me on Twitter at need underscore three underscore mugs and on Instagram at notbeforecoffeepodcast. Or you can check out my website, notbeforecoffee.co.uk. Well, I need another cup of coffee. Wow, I've mentioned coffee a lot in the last few seconds as I really haven't had enough. So I'm going to go and put the kettle on. Until next time, this is me saying farewell. <laughs>